Welcome to a new Neon Jazz interview with talented and busy Kansas City-based bassist Bill McKimmy. During this interview, he talks about his Missouri roots, playing jazz in Philadelphia, how the KC jazz scene is doing in 2013, the one artist he would love to meet, along with much, much more. Dig it. I have everything going here. Thank you for uh, for interviewing with us here at Neon Jazz. We really appreciate it. First thing I want to ask you to start off here is where were you born and raised? Uh, born in St. Louis, Missouri, and raised um, outside of a little farm town called Hardin, Missouri. Now, how did those environments foster your love of jazz? Well, you know... Um, the uh, St. Louis part of my life was brief, maybe weeks. Uh, uh, but I grew up on a farm. There was no jazz that was visible in our community, no jazz band in the school. We had a small concert band that had, uh, oh, usually somewhere around 15 or 16 kids in it, and it went from 7th to 12th grade all in one group. And uh, no jazz there at all, uh, mm-hmm. but I took lessons from a guy in the next town, 15 miles away, in Richmond, I took lessons with a guy named E.E. E. Pointer, who had uh, an extensive record collection, and he would wrap up our lessons by playing me a little brief something, a song or a little part of some symphonic work or something a little different five-minute listening thing at the end of every lesson. And uh, he played for me uh, Ornette Coleman's The Lonely Woman from the Smithsonian Collection of Classic Jazz. And I just immediately loved it, and he went and got the whole box set of the Smithsonian Collection of LPs, and he loaned it to me. And I took it home and just listened to it and listened and listened and listened. And... uh, that's that's how that started, although at the time I was not playing any jazz and uh, was studying the euphonium. And it would be years and years later before I would play bass at all or attempt to learn jazz in any way. Interesting. You know, E.E. E. Pointer, um, we have a friend of our families that was the principal at Harrisonville and referred me to him. He's a great guy. He sure is. Um, he's, he's my greatest mentor and uh, a lifelong friend. I met him in 1980 when I was in the eighth grade, and I studied with him until I graduated high school, and we've been friends ever since. Yeah, you know, I love his Zen jazz. I had that track on my show. He's he's a great musician. Yeah. So as we kind of move forward in your life here, when did you actually start playing bass and getting your fingers on instruments? Well, uh, I went to college, and... Uh, I became a tuba major, and I had dabbled with playing electric guitar in high school in rock bands. And uh, at a moment in time when I was oh, maybe just 18, I started college when I was 17, and uh, uh, my sophomore year, the bass player in, in the school jazz band uh, just disappeared, quit school. Uh, mid-semester with uh, a big concert coming up and uh, my tuba teacher also ran the jazz program and he knew that I could read bass clef and that I knew 
where the notes were on a guitar neck, like I could locate note names and had some knowledge fretboard. And so he loaned me a bass guitar and said, here's the folder, take it home, you know, the gig is next week. And uh, so I just kind of, I, I wasn't really interested in it, but I liked my teacher and I wanted to help him, and so I, I jumped in and did that and just played electric bass after that when I had to and wasn't incredibly uh, motivated or interested in it. Um, and then a couple of years down the road, I got into a, a kind of R&B soul type band playing electric bass with a bunch of friends of mine. And I enjoyed the uh, social aspect of being in that group so much that I dug in and learned to play the instrument better. And uh, uh, then it also, with just within a year or so, it became feasible for me to make enough money gigging that I could pay my living expenses and uh, uh, I've just never turned back from that and learning jazz was at the time just an extension of trying to learn the instrument and I thought that uh, learning the bebop language um, and the, the various rhythmic styles and jazz that those disciplines would be the best school that I could get into in terms of uh, learning the electric bass at the time. I didn't have access to a teacher where I lived. There was no one else that was a serious player. And so I just I listened and learned uh, parts off records and played gigs and was kind of, uh, you know, my training all uh, self-taught for a long time and kind of learned in the, the most... A traditional way of uh, you know on the job learning everything on the bandstand and learning um, the instrument and the repertoire that way interesting so talk to me about your family how did they influence you and help you foster your music talents well you know they they planted the seeds and were supportive of me in terms of uh, creating an interest in music for me. My mom also had a really good classical record collection. And mixed in there, she had one jazz LP, which turned out to be a great one, a Duke Ellington Uptown, uh, that was one of those uh, later career albums that kind of uh, rebuilt his uh, presence as a concert artist after the uh, swing era had kind of fizzled out and World War II was over. Uh, right, it was right about the time uh, as his uh, Newport Jazz Festival appearance that's so legendary. And uh, that record uh, had a huge uh, impact on me and still does. It's something that I, I still get it out and listen to it maybe once a year all the way through. And I learned to sing along with all the parts in the record, all the solos and uh, Betty Rocher's scat solo and Take the A Train. Things like that are just huge, hugely influential. Uh, but after I became interested in music, say, as a career, my folks were not quite as uh, excited about that and wanted me to uh, do something that was really, uh, oh, safe and predictable, like become an accountant or take over the family farm or something like that. Sure. And I, I wasn't interested in the very least and just, you know, I, I had uh, my head down full steam ahead, music only, and that's how I've been ever since. Cool. So... Speaking of full steam, I read in your bio that you've learned from some pretty uh, 
pretty influential cats in the jazz scene, like uh, Pablo Batista and Randy Brecker. What was it like to learn from these guys? Well, uh, I didn't. I wasn't involved in a, a teacher-student relationship with them, but uh, on the bandstand. Um, and uh, Pablo, I played with him in Philadelphia. We were both associated with a group called AMLA, the Asociación de Músicos Latinoamericanos, uh, kind of an unofficial musicians' union that existed in the, uh, oh, mostly Puerto Rican, but also Cuban, uh, Dominican music community in North Philadelphia. And uh, I was interested, I met Danilo Perez in college, pianist who plays with Wayne Shorter now. I met him in college because he had gone to school with my teacher uh, during that time, Rick DiMuzio. Um, Rick is now at the Berkeley School and uh, uh, playing in Boston and New York with um, lots of top people. Um, but I met Danilo through him and became interested in Afro-Cuban music and got to uh, listen to him conduct a few master classes and clinics over the course of a weekend. And uh, then when I moved to Philly, I sought out the opportunity to play uh, Latin music and uh, was I immediately, say within six weeks, I was able to get into a salsa band that rehearsed at this AMLA uh, kind of, you know, call it a union hall. It was kind of a cross between that and a community center. And uh, rehearsing there were several different bands, and some of them were the top uh, salsa dance bands in town. And it's a freelancer's market uh, like it is uh, with a lot of things in the music business. And so by just being there rehearsing with one group, I was uh, noticed by other band leaders and got calls and was soon working uh, a lot playing uh, popular Latin music, salsa, and uh, oh, uh, some merengue and cumbia and just different, different dance styles like that. Cool. So what was it like to be in Philly and playing up there? Well, it's it's a mind blowing experience. You know, the the city is uh, uh, roughly four times the size of Kansas City, something like that. Um, the population in the city, without the the suburbs, when I was there, was about four million, and that was roughly, uh, I believe, at the time, twenty five percent Puerto Rican population. And so, within the Puerto Rican community, there was a nightclub scene all of its own. And so that was different. And then also in that town we have, uh, or had, um, lots of people who had played um, avant-garde music. Um, Sun Ra lived in Philadelphia for a, a long time. I'm not sure on the precise numbers, but around 20, 25 years. Sun Ra lived on Morton Street in Germantown, Pennsylvania, which is a a close-in suburb in North Philly, hmm. and I met on the uh, oh avant-garde, creative, improvised music scene. There are lots and lots of people who had played and recorded with Sun Ra, and uh, that was something I was really into as well. And uh, so this the scene it's it's so big that 
um, you could be working all the time and have lots of folks that you've never met, never heard of you. Um, whereas Kansas City, it's a little bit more familiar if you get to a point where you're, you're gigging as your primary source of income. Pretty much know everybody else that's doing that. And uh, after two years of playing in Philadelphia, you know, I just knew a sliver of the, the music community there. And there's a huge scene there for straight-ahead jazz and a huge, huge scene for uh, avant-garde original stuff and then also union wedding bands playing standards. And very few of these people cross paths with each other. Hmm. The, the scenes are so big and kind of insulated uh, one from the next. Interesting. Talk to me about the bands you've been involved with. You're talking about avant-garde music, and I know in the 90s you were involved with the Malachi Papers. What, what kind of bands have you been involved with? In the 90s, <laughs> yeah. I played with Malachi Papers from, say, 97 to 2000. And um, maybe to the beginning of 2001. Not sure. Uh, that group was composed at the time uh, I started with... Uh, Mark Sutherland on horns and Mike Dillon on percussion, vibes, percussion, sometimes drum set. Uh, but when I began, there was a dedicated drum set player, Ryan Bennett, who is now in Chicago and has done a lot of great things up there. Um, when he left moved to Chicago, we didn't replace the drum position with a full-time person. We kept it as a trio for a while and then added a drum set player to it depending on what city we were in and we, we were touring a lot and Mike Dillon himself having been the percussionist in the North Texas one o'clock band um, he was networked very well with great drummers all over the country and so we would tour and use a drummer in whatever city or region we were traveling through uh, or sometimes just play as a trio if we wanted to do it, uh, to do it that way and uh, that group, I, I, I am reluctant to call it jazz. It was improvisation for sure. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the, uh, the ethos of the group uh, was probably more closely related to punk rock in terms of where our aesthetics were. And uh, it had, say, some jazz influences, and, like studying harmony was something we were kind of interested in sometimes. And we played uh, some cover versions of all kinds of Thelonious Monk and Horace Silver and uh, Joe Henderson and, you know, kind of normal-ish stuff. But we were focused on um, uh, the main goal of the group playing without any, uh, any compositions, playing completely free, kind of in the style of uh, Sam Rivers' work that he was doing in the 70s on Impulse, where it was just... Uh, you know, each player might take their own turn starting a piece, and the other players would interactively create some composition in the moment, and it could go anywhere, and there was no form and no rules, and a really open-ended, truly free improv type of a setup. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I, I used to catch you guys down at the Cup and Saucer, and Bone and Horn is a great album. I've, I really enjoyed what you were doing, and he used to have that method of getting the tape and kind of doing that reverb on it. That was interesting. Right. Mark Mark is all over the place in terms of, uh, you know, what he uh, pulls into his little musical universe. Mm -hmm. And, 
since the time when I was playing with him a lot, he's gotten more and more involved in being a visual artist and a sculptor and doing large-scale performance art that's multimedia, that you know has costumes, theater, lighting, and um, in what he calls embedded photographers, so people on stage that are uh, creating uh, both still photos and video of the group uh, interacting with the performance uh, performance as it's happening and uh, yeah he, he's all over the place he, he makes his own woodwind instruments wow and uh, does a huge range of electronic things that it would take me all day just to try to describe uh, what he does but uh, he uses lots of salvaged and found object pieces and blends that with uh, kind of outdated technology like using 8-tracks. He's got a huge collection of 8-track tapes that he's modified both the, the tape mechanism and the player so that he can manipulate the tape as it's going across the playing heads hmm. and use it to both scratch and make loops and uh, uh, there's just no end to the guy's uh, imagination and creativity that he has with that. That's cool. So talk to me about the albums that you've been a part of over the years. I have I have three of my own albums that I've done, and uh, there was uh, Duende in 2002, uh, which was a set of half-composed songs. Uh, I mean, half of the album being composed songs that were uh, kind of traditional, you know, like uh, could be played by anyone. They could take the lead and, you know, play it with any combination of instruments and uh, then the other half of the material roughly speaking were all free improvised pieces uh, lots of short pieces done with just bass and accordion uh, where we just rolled the tape and took turns leading and uh, creating a little free improv uh, Composition that these things were all short, like one to three minutes long, and uh, that was done with Jeffrey Ruckman, who is a composer and multi instrumentalist. And uh, at the time, Jeffrey and I had been working together a lot, and had, and we still do, this very good rapport with each other in terms of uh, being able to uh, have a sense of what the other person's going to do, and so we could. Uh, create some things that were improvised, not discussed one bit ahead of time, but yet uh, very efficient and economical in terms of how quickly we could hear each other and interact and create this little uh, quick snapshot of some kind of a musical moment. Um, and then that particular album that's Duende ends with a, a long guitar, bass, drums, and electronica a free improv piece and um, my second record Omnidra it was all composed but with lots of uh, space in the forms for uh, a more open ended kind of jam I don't want to call it jam band but uh, more uh, uh, more open to say stretch out over a vamp for the soloists than being purely free improv. And um, 
then the the last one, which was a small released the hundred copies of a eleven piece free jazz collective called Perfume Nightmare, and the, that record is called Underpass, and those were uh, all a set of different free improv exercises and games that uh, I recorded with ten other players here plus uh, a person that operated a, a tape loop um, and uh, that was done in 2006 and I haven't done one since then I'm all I'm all ready to go I've got uh, enough compositions in the bank to do probably two albums right now but I've been sitting back and watching the way things have been changing with the music business and online distribution and uh, trying to plot a course through that myself. So let's talk about live performances. What are some of your favorite places to perform? Where have you been gigging lately? Well, you know, I, I do lots of different things, and uh, that's, that's something I've always stuck with. I, I don't define myself really as a, a jazz bassist or maybe even a musician. I like jazz, and I like to play it, and I like to study it. But I go and uh, I do whatever I can do to uh, stay engaged as a professional freelancer. And uh, uh, I'll, I play weddings, and uh, I'll play bar gigs with blues bands, and just whatever it is, I'm, I'm pretty much a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the places that I like to play right now, I think that the, the uh, creative space that the owners at Take Five have created uh, out at 151st and Nall. I think that it's um, second to none just in terms of uh, the adventurous spirit that they carry into booking because they really embrace the whole scene stylistically. Everything that there is in town is going through that place. Uh, but at the same time, they are able to kind of nudge things in a direction that suit their tastes and the room is a great room to play in like the uh, acoustical sound in the room is fine which most places you know it's uh, it's not really a consideration because uh, a business is operating for other reasons than the music primarily that's usually how, how it is and um, they're kind of blessed with a, a spot that sounds really good and with a clientele that come to hear the music. Mm-hmm. And so the, the room is usually pretty full and people are paying attention to the music and it creates really great uh, energy for the musicians to feed off of because, you know, you, you're not competing with, oh, just, uh, I don't know what to call it. There's a certain kind of bar patron that came there not to hear the music and they, they're not interested in it in the slightest and they might be having a loud conversation or reacting to things they see on the TV where some places leave the game on while the band's playing, things like that. Those things aren't an issue but take five. It's just, it's just music, it sounds great and the people there uh, are really friendly and uh, create a beautiful space for people to play music in. Excellent. So talk to me about the Kansas City jazz scene in 2013. How is it doing? Uh, what's making you excited about it? Just talk about it a little bit. Well, um, 
I think it's a really exciting time for our city right now for a lot of reasons. Um, and uh, there are plenty of folks that are kind of down on the changes that have been uh, kind of in motion since the uh, economic downturn of a few years ago. Uh, but I really see this as uh, oh, a great kind of uh, evolutionary opportunity for the scene itself because we've had uh, some established old clubs go out of business and some new clubs, some that uh, stick and some that don't, come along. And so there's a lot of opportunity when you're in a moment where there's a lot of change occurring. And uh, what I see coming from that opportunity is that the uh, musicians in this town, which the, the other little piece to this puzzle that I, I want to mention is that Kansas City is doing a better job at retaining its talent pool than we used to. Uh, when I moved here, it was kind of assumed by the younger players that the city was just a, a kind of a dead end. There are gigs right now, sure, but in the eyes of the young players, it wasn't cool like New York was in their eyes at that time. And we're kind of in a space now where, you know, some of our best and brightest will maybe move off to New York and try it out and then go, oh man, no thanks. Kansas City is way more cool. And mm -hmm. they come back because uh, there are more opportunities here for them and uh, the creative spectrum of what's happening, I don't want to say it's wider, but the, uh, the things that are further away from the uh, straight-ahead standards, they have more of a chance here. Like, you can get a booking, you can get gigs, you can uh, find a way to assemble a following um, for uh, a huge range of stylistic, original projects. And um, the folks that I know that have been trying out New York recently um, it's really, uh, it's a tough nut to crack for young players because um, most of the gigs that they would have access to don't pay at all, don't pay anything. It's come play for free. And the competition for those free gigs is just through the roof in terms of the talent pool. It's an international talent pool of the best graduates of jazz conservatories all over the world. Absolutely. Uh, uh, that's that's really a challenging thing, and you know, so you start to factor in these things like, well, where am I going to live? Do I do I need to live in Jersey City and take the train in an hour to my gig? How do I do that with my upright bass? And even out there in Jersey or in a maybe not great neighborhood in Manhattan, uh, or not in Manhattan, but in New York City proper, like in the Bronx. Um, you're going to still pay a ton in rent, a ton, twelve, fifteen hundred a month to split something that you don't have room to turn around in. Yeah. Uh, and uh, to be able to, uh, this is just my observation, to be able to manage the financial bottom line, uh, it's going to require you to have a job outside of playing. That means your practice time is going to be limited to your off hours from work, and then how do you squeeze in the uh, uh, activities that you'll need to do to make it in the scene? Like you, to do that, you have to be out on the club scene where people are playing 
jazz all the time mm -hmm. so that they get to know who you are and that you're there to sit in and you become friends with these people and study with them so that you can find some inroad into getting a gig. And that, that path is prohibitive to lots of folks. Like, I, I couldn't do it then, and I can't do it now, just from the economic standpoint. And uh, there are some people that might have the connections or resources to uh, pull that off, but it's, it's the rare person that wants to, I think, these days. And so anyway, Kansas City, we're keeping fantastic players here, world-class musicians. Not that we haven't in the past, but there are more now. The talent pool is growing, and there are, there are some new arrivals in town just within the last year or so who have been in New York, and they've played with artists that are on major labels and toured the world, but they're looking at Kansas City and uh, making a decision to move here and base their career here because the environment is so good, so conducive to making creative music. Absolutely. I've, I've heard this quite a bit from a lot of artists here in Kansas City. It almost seems like a, a, a reincarnation of the heyday on 18 and Vine. Yeah, there, there's a fantastic um, energy that is really uh, starting to gather here. And it's in the, the scene, say, people under 30 years old. Mm -hmm. And um, the old players in town who are masters and that are still on the scene... Uh, it is reinvigorating them, and so you have folks like Stan Kessler, who's been gigging in this town for, by his own description, he told me, what, 38 years or 40 years, I can't recall the number he put on it, but he's been here and playing gigs in this town roughly since 1970, and uh, he is playing better than he ever has in his life, mm -hmm. and I think it's because the uh, talent that's around him is more diverse. It's not just that the uh, talent level is going up necessarily, but uh, there's a more broad spectrum of folks who have different experiences that he can call on. And so, you know, he's not playing the same old tunes with the same guys that he did the whole rest of his life every night. He's hearing some new fresh idea, and that turns him on. Yeah. And so he's playing his butt off now. And so it's just an example. Um, and so, right, the, the uh, folks who are the established players here, um, I think, as a group, they're playing better than they ever have because of the youthful energy and exuberance and diversity of the scene. So I'm going to kind of throw a curveball here. And, you know, speaking of the heyday of Kansas City and, and great jazz musicians, if you could go back in time and meet one, anybody, who would it be and why? Oh, um, easy for me. Um, Walter Page, who uh, was the bassist for Basie, mm -hmm. and why there was a, the, the great transformation of the Kansas City scene during that, that era, the Pendergast era of local history, um, the kind of uh, swinging yet jumpy sound of the New Orleans and Chicago jazz of the 20s. You can hear lots of that documented with Louis Armstrong. There was a swing in his playing, but it didn't swing like Kansas City Jazz did in the way that the KC scene influenced everything. And for me, when I listen to all that stuff, I hear what I would call more of a, a deep 
swing feeling or more of a strong pocket sensibility to Walter Page's playing when he's playing a walking bass line. It is unhurried and really grooving at a, a slower tempo than the New Orleans style. And to me, he encapsulates that, that shift in the aesthetics of the music. And uh, yeah, if I could meet him and hear him play in person, man, that would be that would be a treat. Cool. So, what was it like to give your autograph out for the first time? Oh boy. Um, at the time, it was just a curiosity. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, like, oh, really? Yeah. My autograph? Well, okay, I guess so. I, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Don't understand why, but thank you very much. What, what's the last album you listen to, or what do you have going on a CD player on your iPod right now? I'm listening to Steve Swallow today, and uh, a range of stuff like uh, him playing with. Um, uh, Gary Burton and uh, Jimmy Jaffray and more recent things uh, where he's playing with oh, Matheny or um, um, oh, Bill Frizzell. Cool. But I, I'm a huge Steve Swallow fan, especially back in the 60s when he was playing upright bass. The, uh, the sound and feel that he had on the instrument plus his composing are all things I really love. So what are some of your plans, short-term and long-term? Well, short-term, um, today I'm, I'm going to practice, 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 and uh, get ready for my Saturday night gig out at Take 5 with the Rich Wheeler Quartet. And uh, um, we're getting ready to debut a few new compositions out there, and uh, some older ones of mine and T.J. Martley's are already in his book, and so I'm, I'm pumped up about that and just preparing for that right now musically um, and slightly less short term but still kind of short term Parallax has a bunch of things coming up uh, roughly between what March 28th at Westport Coffee House and further on into the spring at some other venues um, and then long term I'm going to be uh, co-writing a book with Brian Baggett and Tom Morgan on the jazz rhythm section that will include a demonstration CD with uh, original tunes, some of which I've written on there, and uh, hope uh, this year to record a couple of new projects, one of straight-ahead type jazz compositions that are all contrafact compositions where there are new melodies written over pre-existing chords from some other famous song. And uh, then I also have in the can a bunch of more experimental composition things for large group free improv that uh, it's all done. I need to get in and uh, mix and master that stuff and decide what to do with it. All right, we've we've journeyed our way to the end here, and I have one final question for you. In the the name of brevity and modern technology, tell me who you are in the length of one tweet, 144 characters. I am a father, a friend, a mentor, and a person that loves music in all its forms and sees in it 
the potential for peace and healing on a deep level. Beautiful. Bill, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players doing jazz these days in Kansas City and around the country. And thanks to Bill for his time and insight into his talented craft. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. 